So this is a very momentous day in Truck About History. It is our 300th episode today. Holy shit. <laughs> happy anniversary, Eric, and happy anniversary, loyal listeners who've been certainly listening for all 300 episodes. Have you not missed any? Please write in to tell us you've listened to every single episode as it's aired. Yeah, 300th episode. Congratulations, Richard, and thanks to all of you for listening to this for so long. We don't do big celebrations, so we will just talk about Dark Frontier. And one of those weird bits of synchronicity on our other podcast, Tuning In, which does not have 300 episodes yet, um, we did the first X-Files movie, and it's weird to be doing what is kind of the de facto first Voyager movie in a way. Um, this- well, except for Caretaker, but that you know that's a pilot, so it's arguable if that counts. Fair enough, but um, yeah, this is certainly so. So my understanding is this was released as one, you know, two-hour event kind of thing, and obviously for syndication, split into two. Um, yeah, I liked Dark Frontier a lot. It is certainly a remake of First Contact in a lot of ways. Um, it has a lot of problems with continuity, which is weird for Voyager to have. Um, but I mostly thought it was a good time. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, I, I think that Dark Frontier is pretty good, but there's always something about it that strikes me as not as good as it could be. I, there's yeah. just a, I don't know, there's a flatness to it, or there's a little bit of sort of like, we've been here before about it. I feel like this is the third or fourth time that seven of nine has possibly gone back to the board collective and while it's all very well done i I appreciate the ambition of it i appreciate the the story quite a bit and i I actually think that the strongest part of the two-parter well it's not a two-parter the strongest part of this uh, feature length voyager episode are the flashbacks that give us more information about what the hell annika hansen slash seven of nine's parents were doing I don't know. It 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 feels like the the seven of nine stuff should be a lot more emotionally yeah. resonant than it is, and and something about it just falls flat to me. Yeah, and I think again, part of it does feel like this is a loose remake of First Contact, at least the uh, seven of nine with the Borg Queen parts are a direct uh, redo of the Borg Queen and Picard bits, and. You mean I the Borg Queen and Data? Oh, shit. Oh, God, it's you... been that long since I've seen First Contact. Okay. Um, the Borg Queen and Data. Okay, then the, the, then at least it's trying to do a different angle with this. I Why had I remembered that as the Borg Queen trying to tempt Locutus back? Maybe that was a more interesting angle for that movie to have taken then. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe. I don't know. Okay, well, then... then uh, then it's even a little looser than I than I thought. I did not have the warmest feelings towards First Contact, if you remember. I like well, I, you you came at you came at First Contact at a very very interesting time because First Contact has lost a lot of luster amongst Trekkies over the twenty odd years that it that it's been out. And you know, you 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 we came we watched it what like I don't even remember. It was probably two or three years ago at this point. And yeah. The the critical appreciation of first contact has gotten a bit a bit lower, yeah. and let's just say that. So anyway, okay. I mean the I really think it feel 
it does feel like they could have seeded this a little bit better. Like, to a degree, this feels like the big Borg story that Brandon Braga has been wanting to write for a while, at least since Seven of Nine came into the fold, and maybe for a little longer. And uh, there is a lot of possibility for emotional resonances between the Borg Queen and Seven of Nine, and certainly since Seven of Nine came into the picture— they knew there was a Borg queen in the fold because First Contact had come out. Uh, and so I feel like if there had been, if in, as you said, this is like the fourth time that Seven of Nine has felt a calling towards the Borg. Imagine if that calling had come in the form of the voice of the Borg queen. Now that they're finally meeting face to face, that has a different resonance to it. That has a much more powerful resonance to it. Otherwise, it's just the show remembering, oh, we have a Borg queen. Sometimes we have to incarnate the Borg in someone, and here we go. Yeah, and and I mean, there's like you said, I mean, there are a lot of of, of sort of inconsistencies in what has been previously established in Star Trek, even what has been previously established in Voyager, which we will talk about. But yeah, I, I think a good way to start talking about Dark Frontier is to talk about the Borg Queen and specifically how she is trying to tempt Seven of Nine or not. Because, I mean, A, as listeners of Trek About are aware, as Richard is aware, I am not a fan of the Borg Queen. Yeah. I don't think we really need to relitigate the Borg Queen. If you want to know our thoughts on the Borg Queen, go back and listen to our first contact episode. But suffice it to say, I am not a fan of the concept of the Borg Queen, and I think that the Borg Queen was one of, well, maybe arguably the first, uh, the first of a long, slow decline of the Borg as a credible threat in the Star Trek universe, and we'll leave it at that. Yeah, doesn't it feel like watching Dark Frontier, watching it, I'm like, this is the last the Borg are remotely going to be a threat. And not they aren't the huge threat that they were in based, Best of Both Worlds even at this point, but... This feels like their last last gasp at a credible villainy. Right, because, you know, the, the, the well, they, they, I guess they, we they, are they, talking about the continuity issues already, because one of the things that I find so frustrating about Dark, about dark Contact, I want to call it Dark Contact, <laughs> about Dark Frontier is that, A, the, the entire thing at, at The Gift, right? When, when Cass left the show and she was ascending to a higher plane and she turned into an energy being or whatever the fuck happened to her, and her last gift that was in the name of the episode, the gift, yeah. her gift to Voyager was to throw them outside of workspace, was to throw them 10,000 or 20,000 late years yeah. f- closer closer to the Alpha Quadrant, closer to home and Vulcan and whatever, Kateria, I don't know. And now we're back in Borg space with really no explanation. Uh-huh. And fine. I mean, again, this is Voyager and and sort of like close attention to detail in terms of world building is not necessarily something that I expect from Star Trek Voyager. But but even so, it feels a bit convenient. Like, a lot of times with Voyager, I feel that the show has an idea for a story it wants to tell and sort of wraps the world around it. Yeah. Okay. Without trying to figure out a way to really make it work organically and... This is a perfect example of that. Why are they back in Borg space? And not only back in Borg space, but like really in Borg space now. I mean, you've got these giant Borg space stations and different ships and all kinds of stuff going on here. 
It reminds me of the thing in old video games where you have the grass level next to the fire level next to the ice level and where it doesn't make any sense ecologically or geographically, but that's the way that we're doing the level. So it doesn't make any sense geographically that this is where the Borg HQ would be, uh, but or that it would be accessible to them or anything like that. But that's where this plot is going to happen. So, of course, that's just how it goes. You're right. It does feel like they are shaping the world to be anything else, which makes me have hope that we can get back into Kazon space somehow, or, or Vidian space. We can do this. We can do resolve you really, those really <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm with you, but I think at the same time, and, and this is going to sound like a criticism of, of Stargate, but it's not. I love Stargate. I think it's a fantastic show, and everyone should watch all 10 seasons of it. But it's really, really good to watch when you've had ankle surgery and can't walk for six weeks, and <laughs> ask me how I know that. Um, it, it it's turning Star Trek into Stargate, you know, and and I say yeah. that because Stargate is this type of franchise that sort of like played around loosey goosey with where things are in the universe and how they relate to each other, and space didn't really matter, and yeah. travel times didn't really matter, and all that kind of stuff. And Star Trek Voyager is part of the Star Trek universe, and so all of these things were treated at least a little bit more seriously than they're being treated in Star Trek Voyager, and you know we are halfway through the first season of the Brian and Braga era of Star Trek Voyager. And I think that we can come to some mm. perhaps premature conclusions about, about how he is treating the world of the show. And I think how he is treating the world of Star Trek Voyager is that he is very interested in telling a really good story and be damned the logic. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter where any, and I'm not, that well-versed in Stargate, but my understanding is the major MacGuffin of the title means that they can instant that distance and space and time don't matter. They can go on any planet, and so the geography of it is irrelevant. You can right. go back to areas you went earlier, but the the distance between things is baked into the premise of Voyager. If distance didn't matter, it wouldn't matter that they were in the Delta Quadrant in the first place. But it does. If distance didn't matter, it wouldn't matter that in Scorpion they have to find this very precise way through Borg space and it's so dangerous and scary. And if they, Because that if they're just going from Borg space to Borg space, you know, like it's very – you're right. It is very clear that there is a specific – region and then they are past that and maybe they'll meet occasional drones and all of that and scouts and things but they're not going to meet the borg queen uh unless i mean the episode doesn't the episode does a little bit about oh well you knew that you're on the you're on voyager because we're letting you be on voyager and the degree to which the borg orchestrated seven of nine's adventures on voyager is a little irrelevant i can uh, I can buy that they're just, you know, that just happened and they're going with a convenient situation to have a spy and maybe, all right, the Borg Queen has been shadowing them this entire time and, like, they could have done that, you know, we've been checking up on you, we've been just outside of the range of your scanner, so we've always been around by you and, and in a way, that would make the Borg back as a threat because they're stalking you and you don't even notice. Yes and no. I mean, I think that that to some degree, though, that would make them less of a threat because that's not how well, the Borg operate. You know, the well, the, the yeah. Borg in in TNG and even in in the movie, at, to some degree, until the the introduction of the Borg Queen, they were, 
you know, as you like to say, cancer, they're, they're insects, yeah. they're just swarming and, and you can't stop them. And there's no thought process behind what they're doing. They're just consuming everything that they can. And I, I mean, I take that, that relationship between seven of nine and the boar queen specifically the moment when the boar queen says, Oh, you know, we let you get captured by the Voyager crew because we wanted to spy there and et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, I don't take that as true. I, I think she's yeah. fucking with seven of nine because she is obviously trying to psychologically terrorize seven of nine for whatever reason. But it just, it once again goes down this road of making the Borg out to be a lot less threatening than they are because essentially it's, it, she's she's the bride of chaotica then right i mean like yeah she's she's just some weird evil creature that has some slaves that help her but the borg themselves are not this all-consuming ever-present threat like they were before well that's what bride of chaotica was foreshadowing um i i i see there is a little bit in the borg queen's plan is that oh the humans keep resisting us and we've done every we've done all of our normal techniques on humanity and we have never been able to assimilate them so we need to do something different and we're letting 7 of 9 keep her individuality so she can report to us and explain what's different and that her insight into the plans will help us plan better and all of that and they are using uh, th- their their big plan is this slow virus on humanity that's very unborg like and i feel like if there was a direction that this was going that this could be a good step in other words species 8472 was this big scary entity they began to uh pretend to be humanity and in that pretense they began to understand humanity and learn and become open to negotiating with them and a lot of the theme of voyager has been well the borg may be able that we can maybe reason with the borg maybe we can talk to the borg we haven't figured out how to do it effectively yet but i mean certainly that's the hansen's view of the borg that the the long-term project of the federation could be figuring out how to finally get the borg to be our friends and if this was a first step into, well, the Borg are trying different things, are are realizing that the throw a bunch of ships at it is not going to help in this case, what it is it what is it about humanity? And maybe like I think it's funny that they are so desperate to assimilate humanity when a bit more humanity would cause the Borg to lose their drive for assim- for assimilating. Yeah, I mean, I think to some degree that's right, and and certainly I'm not saying that that everything the Borg Queen is is telling Seven of Nine is no, bullshit, I know. because I think at least some of it is true, and and I think it also is well, that's well how established. It's a f- yeah, I, I also think it's well established in Star Trek that the Borg have some sort of interest in humanity or Starfleet or whatever you want to call it, because going back all the way to you know, their second appearance, the best of both worlds, they they assimilate Picard and he becomes Locutus. And it's this horrifying moment. He's the spokesperson. He is the harbinger of doom. He is preparing humanity to be assimilated by the Borg. And it's supposed to be this this horrible, triumphant moment for the Borg. And of course it is. And so we don't see the Borg 
doing that, right? I mean, we don't see them turning one of these species that they yeah. assimilate uh, in, in, into their own locutus in this episode. We we have seen them assimilate other species before. We we never really see them do this. They they just don't do that kind of thing. So so yes, there's something special about humanity because well, it's Star Trek and there's a television show about it. But yeah, but I. I- I think that's actually a pretty easy to explain difference of humanity is that humanity is so much more wider spread and there is a lot more I mean certainly there is a very there are very obvious differences between humanity and the federation but the hu- humanity is just one species in the federation it's part of a larger whole and all the borg are from the delta quadrant and other than the Kazon who were not worth assimilating, we don't really have any large groups controlling anything. So each species is I, – I think they – how many people do they mention in this species that they assimilate over the course? Like 375,000. It's pretty small actually. Yeah. Compare that to the number of humans on Earth and and imagine where humanity is throughout the galaxy at this point. And that's just, again, talking about humanity, and we're not even dealing with Klingons and Vulcans and Andorians and all of that. So it could just be that humanity is so much of a bigger project for the Borg than they're used to. I mean, certainly to some degree, I think that's right. Um, you know, I, I, like you said, part part of what I have always said, and I think I've even said as much on, on the podcast before, that sort of my own headcanon for, for the Delta Quadrant and why the Delta Quadrant is so fucked up is yeah. that, well, the Borg started there. And they, they have been around for, you know, hundreds, perhaps thousands of years going after everything. And they have not even been able to take, you know, control over, I don't know how much, you know, you're supposed to say, but let's say they even took over 10% of the Delta Quadrant. That's yeah. still a huge amount of space. And so so them going to the Alpha Quadrant to try and assimilate humanity, I think they see that as a project worthy of themselves because what do the Borg yeah. do? They always say, we want to bring your biological and technological distinctiveness into our own. They They want species that have things either biologically in their evolutionary path or technologically that are going to add to the collective and are going to make them stronger. And just by dint of the fact that humanity in the form of the Federation and Starfleet has been able to resist the Borg um, for at least mm. two full-fledged you know, assimilation attempts, that that maybe means something to the Borg. It doesn't necessarily mean yeah. anything to, to Seven of Nine, but that at least explains to me why the Borg would be interested in assimilating humanity yeah. and how they're, they're modifying their approaches through this virus. What... What I can't really get behind is this idea that they let Seven of Nine get kidnapped and liberated, no. depending on who you're talked to, by Janeway and the rest of the Voyager crew as some sort of spy, because I don't know what purpose that would serve. And no. I just think that's a little bit of psychological manipulation on the part of the Queen. I mean, the most that I would go with it is that they... Seven of Nine getting onto Voyager and getting deborged, the Borg did not anticipate that, did not realize this, did not expect that, but uh, – and they even make – they do make a bit of attempt to bring her back in some episodes early on, but then they do kind of – that kind of falls off, and – the the most charitable is that the Borg Queen figured, okay, at this point, we've tried to get her back. It hasn't happened. We're going to let her learn a bunch of stuff, and then in a year or two, we'll 
meet back up with her and it, 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 it seems more like a situation that they're running with rather than one they orchestrated. But I do agree with you that that is part of the Borg Queen's attempts to manipulate her. No, you've yeah. always been you've always been working for us. You were never really on the Federation side, kind of a thing. She did, the Borg Queen is not very good at manipulating Seven of Nine, and at least on the long term basis, I think that is part of the episode's text. So, if they go through, if she makes some weird uh, attempts at manipulation that don't quite work, I think that is partially the point. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that is partially the point. I, I, I think you see that in First Contact as well, because the the Borg Queen is trying to manipulate Data by by giving him feeling and giving him real flesh and all that kind of stuff. And it works to a degree, but then it doesn't work, of course, because it's Data. But I think we see here that the, the Borg Queen thinks that she's more manipulative than... Yeah. than she actually is or or that she's better at this than she thinks she is but well, there's just there is something that the Borg queen just cannot click on to i mean i, I obviously we have two different actresses playing uh the queen and i think i do like first yeah. contract tax actress a lot better but um her manipulation. And I'm also of, also, I, and I'm also never really sure if it's supposed to be the same queen or not. Yeah, or it's just they constructed a new one, and of course it's different. Like, is the different actress actually part of the universe? Right. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, yeah, first contact is much more sexual towards data and taking an aspect of data's humanity and misinterpreting and thinking that all right, well, these certain pleasures are what's going to because. Biological species are ruled by pleasure, and so we just dangle a few in front of data, and that will be enough. And as we've learned way back in the uh, early episode where Q makes him laugh and he decides, you know, no, that's not enough. That That's not humanity. That's not real. Uh, there is no way data will fall for this temptation. Um, and it seems in this episode she is going a little more towards the motherly thing of course with 7 of 9 oh welcome home you 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 have a place here and all of that when and thinking all right well biological creatures are driven by their need for home and companionship and family and all of that and without realizing that 7 of 9 already has that and has a better version of that than the borg could ever provide and just, again, just not understanding what it is that makes them so special. And like I said, that that's why I think it's bitterly ironic that her plan hinges around having Seven of Nine there to kind of get an in on to what individuality and ha- humanity means when the very individuality and humanity means that Seven of Nine would never willingly do this. Yes, but but I also wonder more fundamentally backing this up to maybe its logical conclusion if does the Borg Queen actually care about any of this? Is she just bored? You know, I think that's part of what I find so 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 annoying about the concept mm. of the Borg Queen because I fundamentally really don't understand what purpose she serves aside from the purpose of making it easier for the person writing the script to personify the board. Yeah. 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 Like that is why she was created because a movie needs an antagonist or so you think. And so that, that is why the board queen exists. Now, 
you know, Brian and Braga co-wrote First Contact with Ronald D. Moore. So yes, he's going to bring the War Queen back in the you know uh, you know feature length sweeps episode of Voyager. He's he's writing, but I just I don't know. And well, I guess the question what, is what is more well what's more egregious about it to me is that we have we get to this place so often with Seven of Nine, and once again we are just watching the same thing with her only this time it's creepier and it is nice to see her uh obviously not buying into the queen's shit and she has no desire whatsoever to be assimilated that is that is beyond her at this point and and i mean we do i mean that that scene where she watches someone get assimilated and watches him like horrifyingly die essentially is is, is yeah. really uh is really disturbing but but to what end is any of this i i i don't know yeah it's by this point it is not as if we for a second think oh seven of nine is actually going to fall for this she's actually going to feel like she's home and to the episode's credit i think they and and maybe this is just uh jerry ryan doing this but she's absolutely disgusted from the second she gets there and yeah. we know that she's finding this horrible. And I mean, there are certain plot beats that I th- character beats that I think are necessary. I think we do need to have seven of nine feel that the crew of Voyager is important enough that she's willing to make a, sac- a self sacrifice for that. That is yes. not a ver- that is not something that seven of nine understood or would have even thought of early six months ago but the fact that she is very willing to do this is another note in her character and i think we do need to have she's had an idea of what going back to the borg means and this is confirming that all of those worst fears are true i mean there is some there is some merit in having her go back home and realize oh god the neighborhood's even worse than i remembered oh god this is even shittier (laughs) oh god (laughs) Yeah, yeah. My my parents are as horrible as I remember them, you know, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I get you. And I mean, I think that that is also, I think, what is so frustrating about um, the Seven of Nine and, and, and Boar Queen stuff in the episode, because I, 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 get, I get what they're trying to do. I get that they're trying to put, or Brandon Braga, since he wrote this episode, I will use his name, is trying to... Uh, you know, do some sort of parallelism here between the Boar Queen and Janeway in, yeah. in the two quote unquote role models that seven of nine is, is, is being portrayed as having. And here is one path that she could go on. And here's another path that she could go on. And isn't it great that seven of nine has really become an individual. She is disgusted by the Borg. She does not want to do anything. She's actively working against them, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, that's great. And I appreciate that. I think it's, it's really strong character stuff for seven of nine, but it's once again, it's just wrapped up in a really bad, package because the, the the Boar Queen is just fundamentally a problematic character that yeah. is never as interesting as the person writing her thinks she is. And I mean, it's, I don't, I don't get, I don't, I, you know, I don't get what this episode is trying to do with the Borg. And I, I kind of feel like they're not really trying to do anything with the Borg. Well, the Borg have become a generic Star Trek antagonist at this point. This is not that different. I mean, the the Borg are not treated any different than Klingons or Romulans or Kazon or anything. They are are a threat. 
They're somebody that everybody needs to take seriously. But, I mean, these are the fucking Borg, and they're making a heist to steal from them. (laughs) In the next generation, that would have been unimaginable for somebody with the resources of – yeah. I will say that that, that I will defend that choice because – the Borg are very difficult to use, and you could not use the Borg in the way that TNG used them. Voyager has already gone down this road of changing up the ways in which yeah. Starfleet characters engage with the Borg, going back to their first appearance on Voyager and Scorpion, where Janeway makes a deal with them. And I actually like that. I think that that, more than anything else shows the value of of federation philosophy yeah because if they can find out ways to 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 treat the borg more normally quote unquote than this you know just horrible threat that you just have to run from as soon as you see them i think that's actually really good and you know, leaving aside the fact of is it a good idea to pull off a heist and steal a transwarp conduit <laughs> from the Borg? Well, that's a side issue, and we'll talk about that because I, I think this, the, the events of this episode indicate that that was not a good idea. But the existence itself of the heist doesn't bother me. Yeah, no, no, and I'm with you. And I think that is a side effect of the scientific process, which Star Trek, since the original series, has had a very strong love for. And... This is something that the story of the Hansons actually makes very clear. You have something that is utterly unknown, utterly terrifying. What is this gigantic orange ball that's rising in the sky every day? Oh, God, it's a monster. And then, you you know, you learn about it and you use your intellect and you understand it and you begin to comprehend it. So this is the point of this is – I mean we've probably seen the Borg a dozen times at this point and we begin to comprehend the Borg. So if it is being defanged, it's being defanged because we know a lot more about them. We understand them. The, the For example, at this point in Star Trek lore, it's known that you can be on a Borg ship just minding your own business, not touching anything, and the Borg will probably ignore you because yeah. just the – I mean they're treated – they treat – people on their ship almost like we treat ants like yes we'll probably set out a couple traps for it but we're not going to go crazy smashing every one we have other shit to do i mean that alone is so much more of a i mean compare that to q who where nobody on the enterprise knew that and they're absolutely terrified to be on this ship oh god we're close to something it's gonna attack us so yeah it does make sense that the borg are slowly being defanged that is the mission of Starfleet science. Yeah, I know I'm with you. And I, I, I guess the question that's left is once you defang the Borg and once you make the Borg more of a quote-unquote normal adversary, are the Borg still interesting? And once again, I think, you know, repeating myself, but that is why they introduced the Borg Queen because when you start to go down this road of Federation personnel and Starfleet personnel adapting, yeah. haha, to the Borg and being able to go on their ship and not get attacked by them and steal stuff from them and blow them up and all this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, that is the whole purpose of the the first, you know, five minutes of this episode where they very easily take down a Borg ship and destroy it. And they're like, oh, whoops, we didn't mean to do that. What happened? You know, like it's <laughs> you almost know comical because if you could go back in time five years and, you know, show that to Picard, you know, yeah. right before he got abducted by the Borg, he'd be like, oh, okay, I guess I shouldn't worry about them. 
But it is the case that I don't know that the Borg are left with much that is interesting then that kind of makes them different from this ever-present threat. And if you can fool them, if you can sort of like wipe away their ant trails, if you can, you know, lure them away with sugar or whatever the hell they're doing, I don't know. Are they that interesting? I mean, on an individual level, no. And then on a collective level, no. Yeah, and I I, I, I think that's part of why I say this is the last time the Borg will seem threatening because uh... – there is at least the psychological threat, the philosophical threat that remains. This is an episode about a philosophical debate between Federation values and Borg values. And now this is a curb stomp. There is no way that the Borg are even going to get any points in. But – and maybe that's part of the problem. I mean a lot of – especially in the early Seven of Nine episodes, she gave a perspective of the Borg that made sense, that – all right, I actually can see why somebody would appreciate being in the Borg. It's to a Borg, this lifestyle is very nice. This lifestyle makes a lot of sense. And the Borg Queen tries to do some of that. Uh, I don't think as successfully as Seven herself does in her early episodes. Uh, But this is at least attempting to be a battle of philosophies between the two, and we've had that battle. And where can the Borg go? Yes, but we've also had a very similar argument made better, I think. And I, I apologize because I, I don't remember the name of the episode, but the episode where Chakotay crash lands on the planet yeah. that it was, was dis, you know, disconnected Borg drones and was kind of making the argument that if you opt into a yeah, collective yeah, yeah. unconscious or a collective conscious, I guess, not a collective unconscious, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And yeah. I also think that, once again, this is something that Star Trek doesn't deal with very well because what what, what functionally is the difference between an entire species of telepaths and the Borg? Yeah, I mean, how different is it from life on Beta Z? It's true. And right. Other than the fact that Beta... I, I, I mean, Beta Z has certainly turned... The, the little we know about it, it's a very beautiful planet if loaxana troy is any indication it's very sensual it's very well except when it's getting invaded by the dominion but yeah continue uh, yeah i mean that that's part of why beta z being invaded by the dominion is so horrible because it's such a nice beautiful place but um i don't know because you're right the bird queen is a crappy character and i think about the way that they handle the female changeling in uh in, in, in DS9, I mean, she is functionally the same thing. Somebody who is representing uh, the whole. It is the same actress every time. It, it is wearing. So we know, we, we as an audience are able to connect with this character and use her as a uh, representative of the whole. But I think the way that's handled, number one, in that. Her physical appearance is kind of understood in the show to just be kind of a kind of a riff on Odo, and that's it. It's not. It's just a convenient form. It isn't an actual entity. She is no different from the rest of the, uh, the uh, uh, of the Dominion, uh, and she's just called the female changeling, right? Like we 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 don't ever get yeah, a name we never for get her. a name for her, yeah. We never get something as, as as striking as the Changeling Queen, and she also does not speak drastically different than the rest of 
the members of her species. The Borg Queen is the only person who says I. The Borg Queen speaks from a position that's slightly different from the rest. The Borg Queen is very aware that there that as Borg as she is, there is a separation between her and the rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's change tax a little bit and, and and let's talk about the the setup for the episode, the the Hansons adventures in the Delta Quadrant yeah. because you know, obviously it is something that uh the show is setting up, right? These these inventions and these these um uh, investigations into the Borg that the Hansons are doing that are unbeknownst to everybody else that would have been very beneficial if the Federation had had access to their information, their logs when the Borg were invading them during the events of the best of both worlds, because their ship was taken in the Delta Quadrant, they were assimilated, which we find out horribly. We They didn't just die. At least her father was assimilated uh, because the, the Borg Queen shows the assimilated drone of her father to Seven of yeah. Nine. Uh, although we don't, interestingly, we don't see her mother. But it's obviously a parallelism between that and what, the Voyager crew is doing and trying yeah. to get seven of nine back because the Hansons gave Annika Hansen to the Borg and the Voyager crew is trying to take Annika Hansen back yeah. from the Borg. And they're using the same information that they had. I, I, I think that's the most striking part of the episode. I'm, I'm curious what, what you thought about it because I don't know. Did you think we would ever get this much information about what was going on with Seven of Nine before she was assimilated? No, and it's very – see, I, I, I mentioned there were some retcons, and I think this is where the bulk of that is. Number one, the implication that somebody in the Federation knew of the Borg before the events of Q-Who um, is weird. Uh, I'm not well. I'm not a huge it, continuity person, but it does seem a little awkward. It is. It's weird, and it's not weird because this is something that Star Trek has already been doing for a while. I mean, let's not forget that. Yeah. we knew previous to this that Guinan's people, the Elarians, had been assimilated by the Borg. We also yeah. know that they had been running from the Borg uh, in like the late twenty third century because we saw Guinan at the beginning of Star Trek Generations. So there yeah. were a bunch of refugees coming from the LRN system, but they never told the Federation who they were running from, right? Like there's there's already starting to be some weird continuity issues mm. here. And I'm not getting totally hung up on it as you're no, not. no. So no. I mean I, I think that an argument could be made that perhaps Picard should have recognized who the Borg were, but of course no one knew what was happening with them then so you can't really you know what i mean like they didn't realize they were gonna write this episode in 1990 no no of course and it's not like uh guinan probably had any photos of the borg and her descriptions compared to actually seeing the thing are two very different things yeah and that's fair um and there also was like a little bit of whispers of that in tng with the um, romulan outpost that had been taken yeah you know stuff like that so it it was around there i can i can skate by it a little bit i mean i don't know how much i can buy that it was a like sanctioned federation research mission that the hansons were on but you know six of one half dozen of another i guess yeah 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 um the major thing is that this uh 
and, and I don't know what degree the show established this, and this was my own Ked Cannon. I thought the implication had been that seven uh, that Annika had been born in the middle of this expedition, and it does paint the Hansons in a very different light. That yeah, we're going to grab our five year old daughter, and we're going to go gallivanting to see a monster. Uh, and, and I mean, the episode does mention that and we do obviously see how bad of an idea that turned out to be um and i think maybe that is just simply another wrinkle on the whole tng had families on these uh, in a ship that was weakly going into danger and just the general hazards that go on with this uh, maybe we fear for naomi wildman a little bit too yes certainly and i think that's part of it but I guess also there's a little bit of resonance there because, you know, Seven of Nine, Annika Hansen's parents were, were the people that were entrusted with her care and, and, and yeah. really, really there to to protect her from, well, uh, you know, exactly what happened. And <laughs> it doesn't put her parents in the best light that they yeah. put her in this position. Now, you can argue that, well, the Hansons thought that they had taken all the precautions. The Hansons were very, very smart and intelligent and had a bunch of resources and had a really nice ship and all this kind of stuff. But at, at the end of the day, they were still going on a very dangerous yeah. research mission, taking their five-year-old daughter with them. And yeah, that's not a great look. Yeah. Um. And, and then the Borg Queen, of course, becomes Annika's next mother in a way. And it's really not till Janeway that you get a mother figure for Annika or Seven of Nine or whatever that's actually invested in making her better than she is and getting taking care of her in raising her. Yes, for sure, because I think that that's also the other interesting little parallelism in the episode, which is that Seven of Nine's parents failed her. She was assimilated and she lived for, you know, 15 years or whatever yeah. um, as a Borg. They gave a star date as three two something something something, which was about ten years before TNG. So if that gives you any kind of context, the, um, that makes kind of sense because she was, you know, yeah, yeah. So it, she it, would be. I know there had always been a little bit of you know confusion about whether or not Seven of Nine had been in a maturation chamber or not, and I guess she hadn't been because we're I now think we're she at five five two something. So this was about twenty years ago. So you know twenty five ish. That sounds about right. Oh, I thought she had the the implication was that she had been at least for a while. I thought that that was but anyway, e- either way, it it either way, I mean, yeah, it doesn't really matter, but long-term listeners know our degree of interest in continuity. So this sort of bothers me but not like super much. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's there's continuity that I care about and there's continuity yeah. that I can like skate by. As long as you have some sort of vague respect for it, I don't necessarily care that much. Um, you know, it would be very different if they said something like, "Oh, Vulcans don't exist." You know, that, that yeah, yeah, would be yeah, yeah, a yeah, problem. Yeah. But this kind of thing, eh, you know, it's I a big it's... universe. You can square all kinds of circles. I guess for me, it's just a it's a, it's maybe a yellow flag, not a red flag, but it's one of several yellow flags this episode has, maybe. Yes, but I, I also think that this kind of objection, and I'm not saying you're doing this, I'm saying other people do this, that, and they are not here to um, defend themselves, so that's not really nice yeah, yeah, for yeah. me, but whatever. That that there is this kind of tendency among some Trekkies that, that don't like Star Trek Voyager to say that Star Trek Voyager did a bunch of terrible stuff, and 
it was the start of all of it. And it, it, it wasn't. I mean, this kind of thing had been going on for years yeah. in Star Trek. And again, you know, if they're telling a good story and they're alighting some facts or they're sort of like reinterpreting some things that have happened in the past, I'm fine with that. That's Braga's method, I think. He, he's interested in telling a good story more than he is about squaring the details. And yeah, I'm and they were even aware, they were even aware of that. I mean, if you read the Memory Alpha article about this episode at the time they were making this episode, they even knew that they were kind of doing that a little bit. Yeah, it's fine. There are some other egregious things that happen with the Borg later, and I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but but I do think that I mean, what do you make? Because you said that there was a little bit of parallelism there between you know Janeway taking care of Seven of Nine, the Borg Queen, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, does anybody really have Seven of Nine's best interests at heart? I mean, is that the message of this episode, that that is the purpose of individuality, that we are all islands unto ourselves and no one can really take care of us, and so we should all become like Ayn Rand objectivists? I'm not sure. Because I, I would have to Everything know. that starts this episode out is that Janeway once again makes this fairly reckless decision to steal a transwarp conduit and brings them to the attention of the Borg. And Seven of Nine gets kidnapped and they have to rescue her and they do because it's a television show. But there's just something about the recklessness of Janeway that is once again rearing its head in this episode that is never really commented on. I I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I I, I, I mean, number one, particularly given the life that Seven of Nine has had. I don't think she would be happy with the mother figure who just keeps her home and gives her tea and that's, you know, this tiny thing. I mean, Seven of Nine is comfortable around danger and it, 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 elaborate missions and all of that. And and that is that is Janeway's stock in trade. And so it is a better match in that way. I think that... Again, certainly Janeway does a t- does a bunch of tough love with Seven of Nine. I mean, there is this running theme of that's an order throughout this episode, which is used in some interesting ways. Um, yeah, but uh, again, the I, I talked a bit in the first Seven of Nine episodes about how she reminds me of somebody who had, you know. Been in, been in the gutter on heroin for years, and now she's clean, and she desperately wants to get back on heroin, and and, and all of that kind of a thing. And going back to the Borg feels like you're going back to your drug addict mother, and she's fucking up your life, and she's fucking up everybody around her, and she's trying to pull you into her bullshit again, that kind of a thing. And if that's that metaphor, then uh, Janeway is kind of the... She's certainly not a warm and fuzzy mother figure. She has her enough of her own shit to deal with, but at the end of the day, she is very interested in getting Seven of Nine into a spot where she can be on her own two feet. She is interested in getting Seven of Nine to her proper home and all of that, and the Borg Queen is interested, and, and yes, if she is a valued member of the crew, ju- and if Janeway appreciates what Seven of Nine does, she also appreciates what Tom Paris does, and what Tuvok does, and what Chakotay does, and 
what Belana does and for some reason what Harry Kim does. I mean, I think for Janeway, the people's what, capability. What does Harry Kim do? I don't know. Neither does Janeway, but she keeps him around for some reason. Um, they, he he fucks things up. He destroys Voyager sometimes. He is he even, up, was he even in this episode? I, I don't remember seeing him anyway. He and Bellana have had a really bad couple of weeks. Like I think last week, uh, Bellana just said seven, and that was her entire part in one of the episodes. Seven, seven, seven. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm with you, but I, I also think one of the one of the interesting little uh, scenes that that perhaps you know didn't seem very important upon upon first watching this episode, I think takes on a new importance when you start to to kind of examine Janeway as as is parental figure because you know you say yeah she appreciates what tom paris does she appreciates what tuvok does all of that she she does but she doesn't appreciate them she's not proud of them in the way that she's proud of seven of nine you know janeway is not maternal janeway is not a parental figure to her crew um i think you could make a very strong argument that someone like um you know cisco from ds9 is much more of a parental figure than than janeway ever is and the scene that strikes me as very key to this understanding of Janeway is the scene where Naomi Wildman comes to mm. Janeway's ready room with this proposal to rescue Seven of Nine. And Janeway is not maternal in that scene. She is not motherly <laughs> in that scene. But I'm not saying that as a criticism because I think that she No. That is not her that is not her natural way of interacting with people. It is for some people, certainly. But she's much more akin to, I think, Picard than than Cisco. I think she likes kids. I think P- Picard yeah. obviously did not like kids. That was a you know joke amongst people in in on the on the crew how much he did not like kids. But they made a whole episode about it. But at least for Janeway, she knows when someone needs a mother figure, and I think that she can provide that. She provides I- it for Seven of Nine because Seven of Nine is very emotionally damaged and. She needs that. She needs to be that person for Seven of Nine. But Naomi Wildman, an actual child, does not need Janeway to be her mother. She has a mother. Yeah, she she is. Janeway is treating Naomi Wildman as okay. This girl has this bug up her ass about. I'm going to be captain's assistant, and it is very clear that whatever she is going to do, she has extraordinary ambitions and if she studies hard and stays in school she is going to be something really awesome one day and so Janeway approaches her in that scene as somebody who is giving the very first lessons that she's going to need when we get Captain Wildman in 30 years right she, right I mean, she says that oh keep your shirt tucked in and you know no, oh, always go back for your crewman like that's lesson one and that's what she's doing it's not a motherly lesson it's a job mentor lesson i think a lot of a lot of how what, what it always reminds me of with with how janeway um interacts with naomi wildman is is she's really reacting to her as like the neighbor kid yeah <laughs> which is fine you know i i actually like that no and it's good it 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 I, 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 because so many of the other people on the ship don't really give a shit that seven, like, even Neelix is like, well, we could save 30 megawatts of power by turning her bed off. And everybody yeah. else, you know, and it's really, you know, Janeway is missing seven 
very much she is going over that mission in her head and wondering what she could do different, trying to figure out, is it worth it? Can we have it? Do we have the ability to do it? Should we thank the stars that we only lost one crew member and use this transwarp drive? What do we do? And uh, to a degree, Naomi's re- Naomi is the other person on the ship who misses Seven of Nine just as much as Janeway does and kind of gives that resolve and remind obviously she's reminding herself of that never let a crewman behind thing it is the kind of a well the child clarifies our values and all of that but yeah you're right that's a lovely scene it is and i i I think the other thing that that is kind of implicit in that is you know seven of nine i think treats naomi wildman or naomi wildman treats seven of nine or looks up to her like a like a big sister in a way yeah and i think that's very clear and i think that that's what is that that's part of the reason for why Naomi Wildman has been in the show so much recently. But and but I, implicit in that as well is that Janeway has taught Seven of Nine how to be that role model mm. for Naomi Wildman. That was not something Seven of Nine was going to be able to do a year and a half ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. In a way, they're... There is an intermediary in the relationship between Janeway and Naomi, too, if you count that most of the time it's her mother as well. But uh, they are both missing that intermediary in Seven of Nine, and so they are – Naomi's getting the insight she would have gotten from Seven, as, and Janeway is mentoring her in the way she would do Seven for that moment. But they, they are both, I think, recognizing that, no, there is a missing piece here. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and I guess, you know, when we get to the end of the episode, uh, it it is revealed that they have gotten another 20,000 light years closer to home. It's almost almost kind of like thrown out there like, oh, yeah, another 20,000 light years before the train warp drive blew out. Um, So now I guess they're what, like 30,000 light years closer to home or they're only 30,000 light years away from the Alpha Quadrant at this point. I don't have a map or anything. I don't know what's going on here, but... It just kind of strikes me as very odd that that's how the show is is handling them getting home. It's just like, oh, yeah, we got yeah, this yeah. transwarp thing. And I remember when it turned us into giant lizards and we had babies. But whatever. <laughs> we're going to forget about that. That's apocryphal information. Yeah, and everyone agreed. And they just get really close to home. And I'm like, okay, sure. Yeah, no, I, I – and that's kind of what I – it's interesting that they're going home by fits and starts. Like, that. it's not as if, for example – they're still in their general area and they find the other caretaker and she beams them home and that's all the way. Like they are they are getting their leaps ahead as they can and I figure there'll probably be one more and then their final leap at the end of the series is my guess about how they'll get home. But it is a bit of optimism well. because I don't know what's going to be. I don't know how Voyager is going to end. Um it may, in some respects, tie in very nicely with some of the themes of Voyager that we have been teasing out since we've been talking about it. I think what disappoints me the most about the episode is that, in true Brandon Braga that fashion, it resolves itself through just a shitload of technobabble scenes. And it doesn't feel like... It's just another case where, okay, throw some science stuff in. Oh, no, some science stuff is happening against us. Okay, we're going to throw some more science stuff at it, and we're going to fix it. Hey, we got through it. And yes, 
it is t- they know how to do this tension well as we have said but it is my my brain just does slide off of that um i mean and i know this yes, is this I- is this has been a theme of mine in star trek for the entire since the original series well, when you have writers on the television show openly saying in interviews that the way that they would write those yeah. scenes is to write dialogue like, hey, you need to tech the tech to tech the tech. Um, yes, I agree with you. Like, <laughs> they, yeah, no, they, I know, I know. they don't know what they're writing. They're just writing techno babble that is going to solve a problem. And then the scientific consultant is going to fill in something that sounds relatively appropriate. But is it actually a satisfying way to end the episode or resolve a problem? Not really. No. When you solve a mystery because uh, it's the kind of thing where it's a mystery solved by something that the audience had no idea of notice, knowing the clues were hidden from us and – I mean, that is an old style of mystery. If you read, for example, all the Sherlock Holmes stories, most of the time you as the reader cannot solve this mystery. It is not a fair play whodunit. And this is just not fair play science fiction in a way. Um, it is – I do find it more satisfying when you have an episode where we uh, you're able to understand what the tech is and when Bolana comes up with the twist in it that's going to – solve the problem it makes sense again it's not a it doesn't kill it completely but it is a problem with voyager that has been cropping up and this just seemed a particularly apt place to know it because of the episode's ambitions right this is not just another episode of voyager this is not a filler episode this is a made-for-tv movie essentially and so its flaws, I would say, are much more magnified. If this had just been a regular two-parter, we might see it less. If it had been a one-parter, we might see it less. Yeah, and I and I mean, I don't want to get into into a huge long conversation about it, but but I do think that it, it, it is an open question. I will I will leave this as a as as homework for the listeners and homework for Richard to think about Ugh. that. Brannon Braga is flying alone at this point. He is mm. he is the showrunner. He is the boss. I and mean, while well, you know Berman's still around, but he's not really a creative force as much as as Brannon Braga is. Yeah, he doesn't have anybody writing with him. You know, famously, he wrote a lot of his best stuff in a collaboration with Ron Moore. They don't do that anymore. He doesn't have a Michael Pillar or someone else who is rewriting his stuff. So. Yeah, what does this, that mean? Mm. Ending an episode is not something he's good at, but you know he's good at other stuff. Yes, and I think that is probably the most charitable thing that anyone has ever said about Brandon. <laughs> oh, good for us. He is the Harry Kim of the Star Trek writing staff. You know, he's... I have said this before about Brian and Braga, and we will talk a lot more about Brian and Braga because he's not going anywhere. I mean, this is he's pretty much like the last man standing in the, in the Berman era Star Trek. Uh, so he'll be around for quite a while longer for us to kick around if need be. But I I think he gets a bad rap. I really do. And is is he the best showrunner Star Trek ever had? No. But is he the best Star Trek writer? No. But is he the worst? Absolutely not. I will take any Brian and Braga showrun season of Star Trek Voyager or Star Trek Enterprise over season one of TNG or even most of season two of TNG. 
you know, maybe, maybe I, I know this is something you said about of all people, uh, Seth MacFarlane in our patron special on the Orville, but uh, what was that? His work ethic outstrips his talent, maybe. Like, I wonder if a similar thing is going on with Brandon Braga. He, whatever you can say about him, he's showing up, he's doing the work, and he hasn't pissed everybody off yet. So that's that's pretty much it. I actually <laughs> think that's a really, really, really astute observation. And what's what's more interesting even than that is I have seen him multiple times at conventions, and people will ask him questions like, "Hey, X episode was really a piece of shit, wasn't it?" And he'll go. Yeah, it was actually, you know, we were writing a lot of these and I was really tired and they're not all going to be winners. You know, he is not someone to double down and think that his shit doesn't stink. So yeah, no, he is very open. He is very open to, to his flaws. I think that's good. No, like there, there is something respectable about that. Again, I, I'm making TV no matter what a show needs to go out. We are going to all get into a shitload of trouble if the show does not happen. So just get it out. Get it done. Get it out. We have a week. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe that's what happened with Dark Frontier. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we'll call it an episode, this 300th episode of Trek About. If you have any thoughts on Dark Frontier, Seven of Nine, The Borg, Brian Braga, or the 300th episode of Trek About, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at trekaboutshow.com. You can check out our Patreon. Patreon is a website where you can trade us money for exclusive access to goodies. It is also a great way to support the podcast that we bring to you each and every week. We could not do it without you. You know, we We show up every week. We do it. We are the Brannon Braga of Trek podcasts. I don't know how I feel about that. But if you would like to give us $300 in appreciation of our 300th episode, you can do so at patreon.com slash trekaboutshow. How's that? We're going to get some $300 pledges. This is going to be great. I will say, Richard, that we didn't make a big deal about the 100th episode. We didn't make a big deal about the 200th episode. I'm not even really going to make a big deal about the 300th episode, but we have shown up each and every week without fail for all almost six years never missing a week never having a rerun uh and we do it two for two shows now and our and we do two shows is every single episode a winner of course not but i think that this is pretty damn good and i think if nothing else that is a pretty good achievement so if you agree with me and you want to show appreciation for me and richard in the podcast Go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow and give now. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are there. Truckaboutshow is our username in all those places. We share some good stuff there sometimes. Sometimes we share bullshit, but, you know, it's Twitter. What are you going to do? And as always, please leave us a positive Apple podcast review for this podcast. All right. We still got star trek voyager to go next week we're going to be talking about the disease and course oblivion <laughs>